The Middle East is in turmoil. Wait a second, didn't we just say that on a recent podcast? Well, once again, it's true. And in this special bonus episode, I'll try to tell you all of the things that have been happening in the increasingly tense situation between the US and Iran recently. And more importantly, try to put them in context. What does this mean? What doesn't it mean? And cutting through all of the hyperbole and hysteria, how big of a deal is the assassination of Qasim Soleimani? I'm Dr. AJ Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome once again, podcast listeners, to a special bonus episode of Blind Politics. I'm Dr. AJ Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government here at the Robertson School of Government at Regent University. Once again, views expressed do not represent either the Robertson School or Regent University, but are entirely my own. I'm recording this on Wednesday afternoon. I think that's important to say because I'm recording a podcast in the midst of a situation that, at the moment, looks like it might be stabilizing, but certainly could still be quite fluid. And that situation is an escalating cycle of violence between the United States and Iran, the keystone of which has been the targeted killing by the Trump administration of Qasim Soleimani, who is a key figure in the Iranian regime, in particular in Iran's international power projection strategy. So let's back up a second, and I'm going to do this sort of a rapid fire take on how all of this emerged and what it means. The origins of the current situation that we're dealing with actually come from what we talked about in the previous Middle East politics, the one that came out sort of toward the end of December, you know, right before Christmas, the last podcast that began with the Middle East is in turmoil. And in that podcast, I mentioned ongoing protests in Iraq and Lebanon that have been surrounding Iran and Iran's influence in the region. And you'll remember if you listen to that podcast, which if you have not, you can download on your favorite podcast provider. Please remember to rate and subscribe, etc., etc. But if you think back to that podcast, you'll remember that I said that we have a real opportunity and a challenge in Iraq in particular. Iraq is very important to Iran for a number of reasons. One, because it looks like an opportunity for them to add to their sphere of influence. But two, because Iraq is very important in the internal Shia game. Iraq is host to two of the most important sites in Shia Islam, Najaf and Karbala. And so the clerics, the clerical establishment of Shiism in Iraq has tended to be very influential on the Shia world as a whole. And so I said, this is a, a real danger and a real opportunity. It's an opportunity for us as a potential danger for Iran if there is this increasing dissatisfaction with Iranian influence on Iraq among the Iraqi population. Lo and behold, shortly after that, we see an escalating pattern of attacks by Iran against the United States. And this prompts the U.S. to respond with sort of some, some more low-level stuff. And all of this culminates on New Year's Eve with something that the Iranians probably should have figured was going to prompt a major response from the United States. A quote-unquote mob of Iraqis, I put that in quotes for specific reasons which we'll get into in a second, tried to storm the U.S. embassy in Iraq with the intention, it seems like, of capturing or killing U.S. personnel in the embassy. Now, why do I say quote-unquote when I say mob of Iraqis? Well, there were graffiti, graffitos that were left on the walls of the embassy that basically indicated that this was an operation conducted by militias that were primarily loyal to Iran and not to Iraq by any way, shape, or form, and not necessarily representative 
of Iraqi public opinion. In particular, there was one piece of, of graffiti that said that Suleimani is our leader, right? So this was a direct tie between Qasim Suleimani and the attack on the U.S. embassy. There were, even if we hadn't had that direct evidence, we probably would have suspected Iran was behind this. Of course, Iran very famously attacked the U.S. embassy in 1979, Iranian students. It was a seminal moment in, the, in Iran's revolution, which became the Islamic revolution that created the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so that's an, a type of action that would have a lot of resonance for the Iranians. And this is an opportunity, it's the kind of thing that Iran has done in the past. In 2005 in Lebanon, when it looked like there was going to be pressure against Iran's access in Lebanon, you know, the, the assassination of Rafi Hariri led to pushback, which pushed out the Syrians. Iran staged a massive counter-protest based on Hezbollah, which is their proxy in Iran. And so, you know, that to demonstrate their power, and, and Iran is all about demonstrating their power and their control in these countries, and that these countries are really in their sphere of influence. But this one backfired, because the Trump administration responded very strongly by killing Qasim Soleimani when he was making a, a very brazen, open visit to Iraq, flying commercial, sort of flaunting his presence there. Who is Qasim Soleimani, and why is this a big deal? Qasim Soleimani is the head of the Quds Force, which is sort of the international brigade of the Iranian revolution. Iran is a revolutionary state. It is a state that seeks to export its form of government around the world, particularly regionally, but also globally. And it's trying to foster a worldwide Islamic revolution. The Iranians have made no bones about this. And this is something that we often forget as American policymakers. We often assume that Iran is really just a defensive state, but they're not. They're an aggressive power. They're a revisionist power. They're a revolutionary power. And Qasim Soleimani was a combination of intelligence operative and military figure who was really in charge of many of Iran's operations abroad and has been for decades. So he's a fairly significant figure in the Iranian regime. And in fact, Qasim Soleimani is very important to Iran's political and diplomatic apparatus. It is basically through Soleimani that Iran is going to conduct, or, or it was through Soleimani, that Iran was going to conduct any operations that might go beyond Iran's borders. So if they're supporting terrorists, if they're organizing Shia militias or other, other militias that are linked to them, Qasim Soleimani was involved in it. He's been engaged in operations against the United States and Iraq. There are estimated 600 American citizens, most of them soldiers, who have died because of operations with which we know Soleimani was involved. The death toll is probably higher because a number of you know operations in Iraq were really run by the Iranians after the 2003 invasion. He has also conducted significant operations against Israel and against Sunni radicals as well. So Iran, of course, was op opposed to ISIS, and so Qasim Soleimani was involved in some of the anti-ISIS coalitions or coalitions that were presumably fighting ISIS, but really, I would say they were strengthening the position of Iran and of their proxies in the Assad regime in Syria. So he's been very involved in Syria, very involved in Iraq, very involved in Yemen, where the Iranians have been backing a rebel group called the Houthis, and sort of all across the region, he's been this figure that has been involved. He was considered sort of a brilliant operator by friends and foes alike, somebody who was very effective and really not only was implementing Iran's strategy, was helping to craft Iran's strategy of power projection around the world. So he was a, this was from, from any, and this gets kind of into some of the domestic aspects of this as well, from any reasonable perspective, Qasim Soleimani is a righteous target. 
Number one, he's a terrorist. And but under the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations, when we can launch a targeted strike to kill a terrorist, we've done that. Obama actually has launched far more targeted drone strikes against terrorists than any of the other presidents since the war on terror began. So this is something that has been an accepted part of America's war on terror architecture. We can argue about whether we should be using drone strikes to do this or should not, but Trump is not actually out of bounds for doing this. What is different is that Trump was actually willing to target Soleimani and uh, Obama because Obama's foreign policy toward Iran essentially consisted of trying to get a nuclear deal at all costs and pretty much push everything else to the side. Obama was not particularly interested in trying to strike against Soleimani or prevent any of the operations that he was involved with. To be a little bit fair to the Obama administration, he was probably also hoping that Soleimani and some of his proxies would help against ISIS, and so there was some kind of, I think, sub-Rosa coordination that was happening there as well. Was this a lawful strike? Was this something that required congressional approval? Well, basically, I would have to go with no for a number of reasons. One, because Congress has shown absolutely no interest in playing its constitutional role in foreign policy for decades except when they can pretend that they might actually do so to irritate a member of the other party who happens to be in the White House at the time, which is essentially what congressional Democrats are doing right now. Congressional Democrats in no way, shape, or form want to actually make any of the difficult decisions that foreign policy requires. They just want to be able to criticize the Trump administration on this and sort of complain about not being consulted. And to be fair, the Republicans did the exact same thing when Obama was president. You know, the Republicans could have placed any number of conditions on Obama's use of executive power in foreign policy had they wanted to do so. They did not. And so Congresses have abdicated their responsibilities. Again, we can talk about whether this is a good thing or not. I would say it's probably not. But it is something that Congress has consistently done across the board. A classic example of this is that we had a long-term deployment under two administrations in Syria that was never congressionally authorized. Now, this was a good deployment, and you know I've been very critical, not so much on this podcast because I hadn't started it to, to the same degree that we've gotten rolling now, but I've been very critical of Trump's decision to pull troops out of the safe zone that we established in Syria. I think that was a tremendous mistake that will have immense ramifications moving forward. And it's probably the single biggest blunder of the Trump administration in terms of foreign policy thus far. So I say that to, to, to say that I supported our deployment in Syria, but it was never congressionally authorized. And in fact, that's part of the reason Trump was able to just pull out the way he did was because there was no con- congressionally authorized use of force in Syria. There was no scope of mission. There was none of the things that you would normally have to have for, for Congress. And basically under both Republican and Democratic Congresses, they were happy to let the president do it. So that's one aspect of this. The other is that if you believe David French, and David French is certainly no friend of the Trump administration by any stretch of the imagination, and he's been harshly critical of Trump when he thought that was warranted. And French basically argues, look, this is constitutional. It is justifiable based on the authorization for the use of force that involved both uh, both under the, the counterterrorism, AUF after 9-11, and the authorization for use of force in Iraq, neither of which has been removed. The U.S. lawfully had troops in Iraq. The troops were invited there by the Iraqi government, and they struck at a terrorist who was a target of opportunity in an area of operations where significant military operations have been taken against the United States. And we had very credible intelligence, namely graffiti written on the wall of the U.S. Embassy, that these operations had been launched directly by Qasim Soleimani and that he was directly implicated in that operation to try to kill Americans and kill American officials in the embassy. So this is a righteous target from the perspective of, is it legal? 
Is it lawful? Does it fit the, the laws of war? You know, we could talk about just war criteria in terms of drones, but I would say this was a very limited strike with no civilian casualties that we that we are aware of at this point. And it was really focused on a targeted elimination of someone who was a bad actor. So I think from a just war perspective, you know, you'd rather see a, a limited surgical strike like that that is a proportional response. Now, was it disproportionate? Some people have made the argument that it was disproportionate. I would again say no, but with a caveat. It is an escalation. Yes. Yes, it was. But it was not a disproportionate escalation in terms of targeting civilian civilians, targeting cultural sites or anything like that. Let me come back to that in a second, because I think one of the things Trump wanted to do was not proportionate, but this certainly was. It was an escalation. It was a hard, hard punch back on what Iran was trying to do. And it certainly, I think, is, will upset the apple cart for Iran in significant ways. But it was not disproportionate from a just war perspective, in my view, at least. There might be others who would, who would disagree with that, but I don't think it was from that perspective. Now, the next question that has kind of arisen about this is, is it going to start World War III? And people were asking me kind of this, this question, you know, when you study the Middle East, people will come to you with these types of questions, like, what's the escalation from this? What's Iran going to do in response? And my answer was, probably not much in the short term. If they do something, it will be further down the pike time-wise. And I would say evidence thus far indicates that was probably right. So last night we had Iran launching missiles at an American base fairly ineffectively in what I would say right now looks like sort of was a symbolic act. As of right now, it doesn't seem like there were any U.S. casualties. And, you know, today we had a press conference from President Trump. Again, I'm recording this on Wednesday saying that he believes that Iran is standing down. And so Iran doesn't want to escalate this to war right now. And that was something that, you know, I, I could have anticipated from this. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One, Iran's economy is not in great shape. Two, they're having their own uh, domestic backlash. Three, the guy who would have planned asymmetric operations against the United States in response to this is Qasem Soleimani, who is now dead. So there's a little bit of a potential capability issue there for the Iranians. And so, you know, I, I would say it is more likely than not that that they're not going... This, this is probably... And by the time you listen to this, this could be proven wrong, but this is probably the extent of what Iran's going to do in the short term. Did this attack cost us in Iraq? So there was a vote to remove, the, you know, the Iraqi parliament voted to remove or to, to ask the U.S. to leave, ask U.S. troops to leave. And so this looks bad. But the more you dig into it, the more you realize that this, again, was a, a, an event staged for propaganda purposes. It was a non-binding re resolution. The Kurds boycotted. Many of the Sunni parties boycotted, several of the Shia parties boycotted. The parties that were actually there for this parliamentary vote were parties that were associated with Iran's, you know, essentially associated with Iran. They're proxies of Iran. And so this was something that was staged by Iran, I would say, to make it look as though to try to pressure the United States to act and to try to play on the fact that, you know, President Trump probably doesn't want to be there anyway. That seems to be the, the, the impression that he's sending out. So they're hoping that they can use this to pressure a withdrawal. For a minute, it looked like they were going to because a message, a letter about this leaked. That was disastrous, <laughs> the fact that that leaked. It was, it was massive incompetence on multiple levels that this draft letter that would have only been submitted if it was approved and it was not approved somehow was leaked to the press. Apparently it was leaked on the Iraqi side. Well, if it was a draft, why was it sent to the Iraqis in the first place? So that's not a great aspect of this. But it does not seem like any kind of U.S. pullout of Iraq is imminent or is even necessarily desired by the population, because again, we just saw these massive protests in Iraq against the influence of Iran. Next question, what if any mistakes has the Trump administration made in this? 
I would say there have been two two things that we can be critical of the Trump administration on this. One, Trump in particular coming out saying he was going to strike cultural sites in Iran, after which his own Secretary of Defense had to come out and say, no, we're not going to do this. You know, this is a situation in which, again, it would help the president, I think, if he would listen to or even speak to his advisors before sometimes he tweeted. This is not something that we're going to do. There are things that we could do if we needed to retaliate against Iran that would be an escalation that would damage the Iranian regime, but that would not be considered violations of the Geneva Convention. And striking cultural sites is its just not something that the American government is going to do unless those cultural sites are being used for some other military purpose. And there's, there's credible intelligence in that. So Trump saying that he's going to do this, I think, is problematic on a number of, of levels. He and his defenders will probably argue that that was the reason that Iran has not escalated more. I would say they probably have escalated about as much as they were going to anyway. But, you know, I just don't think that there there are certain things that we don't need to be doing. And also because part of the goal, I think, with Iran should be regime change. I think that the U.S. and the region are both better off, and the Iranian people, frankly, are better off, if there's a different government, a government that's less reflexively ideological, a government that is more open to a positive, constructive relationship with the West and with other actors in the region, in in the Middle East as well, that's not this sort of aggressive, revisionist, expansionist regime. And so doing that means that you want to avoid alienating the Iranian people. Which means, for example, not gratuitously blowing up their cultural sites when you could attack actually targets that are more regime-specific. So that's one thing that I've criticized the Trump administration for. And the other is what I mentioned before, this whole thing about there, there being somehow this letter that leaked and we don't know where it came from and it was a draft. And for a while, you know, for a couple of hours, it looked as though the U.S. was going to pull its troops out of Iraq. And then, you know, you have to come back out and say damage control and this should never happen. It just looks not professional. And I think both of these come down to one of the challenges that we have with the Trump administration, which is that, you know, Trump is a shoot from the hip actor. And he doesn't particularly like or trust a lot of the foreign policy professionals, it would seem like, that are around him. And that can be problematic. Uh, Yes, in many ways, the consensus of the foreign policy establishment is something that can be questioned. But, and you know, certainly as as somebody who's sitting here in an academic environment, that's something that, that academics will tend to do a lot. You know, we'll say this is the consensus and here's why we think it's wrong. That being said, it's one thing to be a little anti-establishment, question the consensus, but professional competence, really important in foreign policy. Steadiness and stability is really important in foreign policy. And so there are some dangers that come when you're shooting from the hip like this. Now, I think on the Soleimani issue, the Trump administration got things right. I think they made the right call. I think it was, a, it was a target of opportunity. They took it. It was good. It was a good decision. And it was, I said earlier that I think the Syria pullout was one of the worst decisions that Trump has made. I think this is one of the better ones. I think this was a, a you know, the timing on this made sense. It was an opportunity. They took it. And I, I, I even think if Iran escalates, we can't necessarily be consequentialist in the way we judge this. I think that as a response to what had already happened, it demonstrated that Trump was not going to allow Americans or American facilities to be attacked on his watch. And that's a sign of strength. Now, following that up with a sense of sort of steadiness, projecting strength, but also a sense of discipline, that there's a disciplined foreign policy establishment, and that you're part of a disciplined apparatus that will be able to bring targeted, forceful responses to things like this, I think is important. And so that discipline aspect is something that we're, we're somewhat missing. And so the hope is that we will start to see more of that. I don't really anticipate it at this point. I mean, we're in year four now of the Trump administration. It kind of is what it's going to be. But in this particular instance, I would say the initial action that they took was right. It was it was probably the right call. And I think that we're 
we may see a de-escalation from both Iran and from the United States now. But we need to stay vigilant because Iran will try to hit back on this later. Once they get things a little bit more organized, once whoever takes over for Soleimani moves in into position. And so I guess the next question that, that might arise and the last question that I want to deal with is what should the response of the U.S. be? And my answer is this. I think we, again, I go back to what I said at the end of the last podcast, have an opportunity and have a responsibility in Iraq to try to push for a better outcome and to try to help. If the Iraqi people are coming out now, they're protesting, they want to d- diminish Iran's influence. You know, I think there's an, there's an important aspect in which we, we have a responsibility to help stand in the gap, to help that happen. And I think that there is a real opportunity to limit or eliminate Iran's ability to project power into Iraq and to really try to roll back the aggressive expansionist posture that Iran has taken toward the region. And that in and of itself is a good thing. And I hope that that's a policy that we consistently pursue, regardless of whether we have a Republican or a Democrat in the White House. Okay, so that's a quick update podcast on what's been happening in the Middle East, and particularly what's been happening in Iran. Please remember to rate and subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast provider. We will be having more podcasts that are not Middle East focused in in the not-too-distant future. Of course, events permitting, we we may be having much more of a Middle East focus if some of the things that I've said here don't end up coming to to fruition, and this isn't a de-escalation. But I think we're going to try to roll with something that's a little bit less explicitly Middle East focused next week. Thank you again for listening. This is Dr. Nolte, signing off.